Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. The measure of life is not its duration, but its donation. Peter Marshall. In today's episode, you'll hear the story of Nancy Salter, a dear friend of my family, and a person whose life and legacy of stepping up to meet the needs of others epitomized the quote by Peter Marshall. Tragically losing her father to suicide when she was nine years old, Nancy and her family were comforted by the kindness of their extended family and neighbors. It was this kindness that inspired her to help and care for others for her entire life. Nancy's daughter, Janet, will tell how her mother opened not only her heart, but her home to others, especially those who are lonely or in need. Regardless of the difficulties and loss early and late in her life, Nancy never wavered in her energy, enthusiasm, and love towards others. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. Janet, like her mother, feels the same passion to step up in many ways, including donating one of her kidneys to a friend. Since donating her kidney, she's been actively involved with an organization called the Transplant Games of America, and participates as an athlete. I'd now like to welcome Janet to our show. Welcome, Janet. Oh, James, hi. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, we're glad to have you. I wanted to start off, Janet, by asking you, where were you born and where did you grow up? Well, I was born at Mountainside Hospital in Glenridge, New Jersey. I'm a Jersey girl, born and raised the first 21 years of my life in West Caldwell then moved all over, and then ended up in Persephone, where I've been for another 35 years. Janet, can you tell us about your family? So uh, my mom and dad have both passed away, Nancy and Buck, and I have a sister, Gail, who's 14 months younger than me. And I also uh, am married to Tom for 37 years. And we have a son, Scott, who is married to my sweet daughter-in-law, Dawn. Such a great family. Janet, since this is really your mom's story, I'd like you to expand on your mother's history and tell us where she grew up and what's her story? What happened in her early years? So my mom was born in Easton. She was the youngest of five, definitely the apple of her father's eye. When she was nine, sadly, her father committed suicide. That had a huge impact on her life because her mom had to work. She had to support five kids. and my mom was always seeing how kind people could be and how they helped the family. I think that impacted her and the way she lived her life because she said, you know, my mom, there were times we barely had anything to eat, but if people came to the door for something, my mom always gave them something. And so I think that that had such a huge impact on her from such a young age. It really formed her heart to serve others. And welcoming the people who were kind of the underdogs and always looking for that person who was left out and needed to be brought into her little fold of people. They really were one of those families in need, you could say. Very much so. And she always says, I grew up poor but didn't know it because they lived right on the bush kills. They had a lot of family around. They had people who helped them out, um, uncles, aunts. So she never felt the struggle that her mother must have been going through as a single woman trying to support five kids. 
she felt this real family unity, caring and loving on them. And in turn, her mother was taking people in and helping them as well. Yes, that's exactly what happened. And, you know, I think that experience of seeing my grandmother and her mom, how she served others, set the tone for the way my mom lived her life. Definitely. So your mom, how did she meet your dad? Did she move from Eastern Pennsylvania? When she was in high school, her family moved to Fairfield Avenue, which is actually where my parents ended up building their own house. And her brother bought a house on Fairfield Avenue and literally moved the entire family in. All the kids, everybody's spouses, they all lived together, 13 or 14 people in one house. And again, the experience was her brother was helping care for the family, taking care of everybody, and demonstrated to her the act of caring and how important it is. So she moved here in high school and then met my father when she was 19. Mom moved from Easton to West Caldwell where your dad lived. Yes. They were about nine years apart, so they never met in high school. When she was 19, she was going to a medical assistant school and used to meet her friend where my dad worked. They would meet there and drive down together to go to the school, take the bus down. And that's how she met my dad. He was, you know, this handsome older guy and really swept her off her feet. Oh, I bet. Now, was this the 1950s or when? Yes, this was actually late 40s. So she graduated high school in 1949. So this was 49 into 1950 that she was going to school. Okay, so she's met your dad, he's swept her off her feet, and your dad had already been in the service at this time. Right. He had been in World War II, came home, wasn't injured, thank God, but then he was convinced to join the reserves. And they said, oh, once you've been in the service, you'll never get called back again. Well, you know what the early 50s was. It was not a war, it was a military action in Korea. He got drafted and was sent to Korea. So at the time, my mom was 18, and he was drafted and sent to Korea. And he said to her, I don't expect you to not date people, but I'm just going to ask you not to get married till I get back. That's a neat strategy. Right. Yeah. So your dad's strategy was, I can't tell her not to date anybody, but if I could at least talk her into agreeing not to get married till he gets back, it gives him that foot in the door when he gets back to get her back at that time. So what happened when he went off to war? Ironically, by giving her that freedom to date, she didn't want to. She would go out in groups and she had her favorite guys, but they were more friends. When my dad was in Korea, he was in the Chosin Reservoir, managed to live through that. Thousands killed. He came out as a few hundred who lived. And when he was being transported on a jeep, The Jeep hit a landmine and exploded. He got thrown from the Jeep and hurt his back. So he was airlifted out and brought home because of his injuries. And at that point in time, he was about 27. That was the Chosin Reservoir. I've watched a documentary about that. That was a really desperate struggle for the U.S. forces there. Really, really amazing that your dad was able to make it home from that, frankly. So he came back in April of 1951. They got engaged and were going to get married in three years because they were going to build their house first. 
So that was in April. And then in June, they decided to get married in August. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. They built their own house together. Not yet. They were going to wait three years until they could build their house. Then they said, you know what? Let's get married first and we'll build the house together married. Okay. Well, that makes good sense. So where did they live? Uh, In West Caldwell with my grandmother. They lived there for three years. And my dad got this great book that said, how to build a house for under $10,000. And it came with plans. And he literally followed the plans, redesigned them a little bit, submitted them, got it approved, and bought a lot in West Caldwell and ended up building a house. It did cost, I think they said 11500 was the end price. But they built their own house, nights and weekends, literally with their own hands and friends, helping them with plumbing, helping them with electric. Took them three years, nights and weekends, while they both worked full time to finish their house. What a way to bond as a newlywed couple. Yes. Or kill each other, one of the two. (laughs) I don't know about you, Janet, but my wife and I have been married 38 years. If I said to Kelly the day we got married that I was going to build a house for her, we'd still be building it. (laughs) I think the biggest project Tom and I ever did was replace the roof on our first house. Congratulations on that. We took all the old shingles off and put new shingles on the roof. So that was our big project that almost killed us. So when you were growing up, when you were little, what are some of your fondest memories, particularly about your mom? What I think I enjoyed most about growing up in our house was the fact that my mom was always involved in whatever activity we were in. So if it was Sunday school, she was a Sunday school teacher. If it was Girl Scouts, she was the Girl Scout leader. It made it nice and easy. My sister and I always had a ride going wherever we were because she was there too. What about family? Were there often people visiting your house? It's funny. My mom and dad, they started a tradition on Friday and Saturday nights because nobody had a lot of money back then. They would play penny any and card games and everybody would gather at their house. My family on both my dad's side and my mom's side. Everybody got along so well, I was a teenager before I realized it was actually two separate families. I thought everybody was only one family. We would have at least 10, sometimes 20 people at our house every Friday and Saturday night. For the first couple of years, I'm sure my mom loved it. But after a point in time, I'm sure she was like, yeah, I've had enough of this. It was tough to kind of break that, but it was wonderful to always have family around. Do you remember holidays with lots of people and things? What did your mom do to make holidays special? There isn't a holiday that my mom didn't used to do, whether it was Memorial Day, where we had a picnic outside, or Thanksgiving, where the kids would be set up downstairs and the adults were on the main floor. We just had the best time because everybody would bring food. She would cook the big stuff. Everybody pitched in, and she would bring out all her special china. She really loved to dress up the table. She had special tablecloths, linens, really went all out for the holidays. Wow. Was she a stay-at-home mom? Did she go out to work at any time? Well, she stayed at home with us until we were probably about eight or so. And we were going to elementary school. And she got a job right next door working as a medical assistant in a vet's office. She liked to be right next door to where we were. And she was using that money to help pay for braces for my sister and I. 
So when my mom and dad were talking about, well, uh, is this going to work out in our family? And my dad said to her, I don't care if you work all day, as long as when I get home at six o'clock, that dinner's on the table. So that's what those days were like. She worked part time. She made it home. She had dinner on the table. When we moved up to the junior high school, my mom took a job right next door at the Board of Ed. And so she worked full time at that point, but she had her summers off. And then when we moved to the high school, she got a job in the high school in the library and worked there for over 20 years. So she had summers off. What did she do during the summer? It was lots of picnics and barbecues. And we used to go to Forest Hill Park up in West Milford, New Jersey. But once we were probably in our early 20s, my sister and I, my mom and dad bought a summer cabin at Essling Lake in Denville. We had gone there many times to visit our friends, and we would spend weekends up there or days enjoying our time with them. So they bought a cabin, but by this time, my sister and I were out of the house. So I never really enjoyed summers at the lake, but they then started a tradition every summer. They were up there from June until September. Janet, your son, Scott, I understand that he used to enjoy some times up at the lake. Absolutely. When Scott was two, I got divorced. And that first summer, he was stressed out. My ex and I were arguing about custody. And my mom stepped up and said, look, let Scott come to the lake and spend the summer at the lake. So what he ended up doing was would go up every summer. And he would spend during the week with my parents. And then one weekend, I would take him. And the next weekend, my ex would take him. So we each alternated weekends. But during the week, he lived up at the lake. And since he was the only grandchild that my parents had, they developed a very, very special bond with him. And he was devoted to them. Wonderful. So I bet there were a lot of fun times at the lake. Without a doubt. And there was really a beautiful ending when my mom died was she gave the cabin to Scott and Dawn. So they are now live at the lake summer, very involved in the lake community. And of course, my son is the president of the board of the lake. (laughs) Uh, Janet, tell us a little bit about your mother's faith and her involvement in her church and the churches that she belonged to. Even when my mom was young, she used to enjoy going with people to churches, although for the most part, her family was agnostic. They were not really involved in churches at all. But I think there was just this spark in my mom's heart that she always felt a connection with God. When we were growing up, we belonged to the Episcopalian Church, St. Peter's in uh, Essex Bells, and we taught Sunday school. She was very involved there. Then we moved to the Presbyterian Church in West Caldwell when I was a senior in high school. And of course, that's where I met you, James. So your mom and my mom were like best friends. They spent a lot of time together, and it was a place where my parents really connected with several other couples that they stayed friends with for life. And I'm now friends with the kids of those couples. Isn't that fantastic? You know, it we, is. sometimes people lose track of each other and things like that, but there's some rare cases and maybe not so rare where numerous generations of people stay in touch, really have this attachment, almost like family. Mm-hmm. There are people from that church whose parents and grandparents were 
friends of my parents and things like that. So it's kind of a neat legacy there. But I just wanted to add something about your mom regarding church, because as you said, I went to the same church as your mom did. And when I was younger, you were my youth group leader. Oh, no. Shh. Oh, she don't tell me. <laughs> you look a lot younger than I am. Uh, <laughs> but I served later with your mom on some committees at the church. Your mom was in a leadership role a lot. I think there were so many occasions where I was at meetings. It'd be getting late and there'd be more things that needed to be done. And your mom leading the meeting would say, okay, what about this? How's this going to get done? And, and it might be one or two, sometimes three things at the end of the meeting where she said, I'll take care of it. But I also remember there would be a flood in our basement at the church. Like, you know, you get there and who would be there with their pant leg cuffs pulled up and, and vacuuming water. The energy, I don't know where she got it from, but it was tremendous. And I always felt she was a person of really of a quiet faith. She showed her faith through action. Without a doubt. She didn't do things just, okay, this year we're going to do this, this year we're going to do that. She led things that became core to the church, like the Thanksgiving breakfast. She ran that for decades. And, you know, when the day came when she had to step down from that and they weren't going to do that anymore, it was a very sad time because the first Thanksgiving that we didn't have the Thanksgiving breakfast, we're all like, oh, I don't know what to do with myself on Thanksgiving morning. Because she always recruited the family. We would go there, we would cook scrambled eggs and sausage. And it was just what we did Thanksgiving morning. But she did that. She was committed. She, saw things through, she would finish things out. And like you said, if there was three or four things that were left undone, she'd be like, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. And I remember this on several occasions. We would be there sometimes late at night at a meeting. She'd be leading it. And then the meeting would close. And then I would see her emptying the waste paper basket. <laughs> yes. That's the way she was. She was not above anything that needed to be done. I'm going to change this a little bit now, and I'm going to embarrass you a little bit, okay? Uh -oh. The reason why I'm interviewing you is because, first of all, your mother really impacted my life. She is a person I really admired, and I was very inspired by her. But I'm equally inspired by you. Oh, thank you. You certainly have your mother's step up for what needs to get done attitude, and you have her heart and her authenticity. I got to say this. You have about twice as much energy than I think your mother even had. <laughs> I don't know where you find it from, but I think you are motivated by doing the right thing and what needs to get done. And I wanted to ask you to tell us about one thing that you did that you felt really needed to be done, that you felt strongly about, and that was donating a kidney to somebody who needed it. Could you tell us about that? Well, James, the way it started was kind of interesting. I read a magazine article about kidney donation. And I thought, oh, gee, this is interesting. And literally, I felt like God spoke to me and said, you are going to do this. There will come a day when you're going to do this. And I just was like, what? You know, I'm not going to do this. And kind of put it aside, didn't think, not one tiny thought about it for several years. Until I was at the Booten United Methodist Church, where I was serving as a Sunday school teacher with my friend, whose husband I had been friends with for years, and he had lupus, and his kidneys had failed. And she was sharing with me what a strain it was because he had to go for dialysis three or four times a week. He was exhausted. 
They had two young boys. He would fall asleep on the couch at night and they were trying to find a kidney donor. And I said to her, what blood type is he? Because literally in my head, again, I felt God speaking to me saying, this is it. You're going to donate to him. She said, oh, he's B positive, which is me. I'm B positive. And I said, oh, I'll donate to him. And I was convinced literally from that moment that it was going to work out perfect. I was going to be a match and I was going to donate to him. When I went to start to get tested, because we are not related, it's a much longer process. It's about six months of testing. And then I started to talk to my husband, who was literally dead set against it. Wanted no part of it. Are you crazy? You know, he didn't really understand me saying, I feel compelled by God. This is a calling for me to do this for Jim. So I ended up saying to Tom, well, let me get tested and see if I'm a match. And I was literally a perfect match. So we went over to St. Barnabas Hospital and Tom met with the head of their kidney surgery. And he put my husband at ease. And we went through with it. I was literally walking into the hospital to donate. And my recipient, Jim, grabbed my shoulders and he goes, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. You can stop right now. I don't want you to feel you have to do this. I said, Jim, I'm 100% sure that this is going to work out perfectly. And it did. I was fine. He was fine. The transplant went great. There were no issues after the transplant. And he managed to live six and a half unbelievably fabulous years to be with his kids, to see them grow up into teenagers. He ended up succumbing to cancer, which was caused by the drugs he had to take for the kidney donation. So it was really tough at the end, but uh, he got me very involved in the transplant community to this day and talk about our story together to people who are considering living donation or who need help finding a kidney. And in the United States, there's over 100,000 people waiting. Wow. 100,000 people waiting throughout the United States, just waiting for a new kidney. So Janet, let's go back to your mom's story. As the years went by and your parents got older and your dad got sick, how did your mom handle that period in her life? It was tough for my mom because dad had gotten sick. He had fallen down the steps, actually broke his neck, and we didn't know it initially and was suffering in an agony, and we finally found it, and she was his caretaker and, you know, really taking care of him through that process. In the middle of that, her kidneys began to fail, and we didn't know why. There was no medical reason that we could find. She didn't have any disease. The doctors theorized uh, could be a couple different things. She'd had a systemic infection. She had had uh, been on heart meds for years, but there was nothing that they could figure out that caused her kidneys to fail. And so after my dad was recovering, she ended up being sick with losing her kidney function. It was going down and down and down. So this is a rough time now because now your mom is in need of a kidney, right? Right. And of course, I can't give her a kidney. And although we didn't actually match blood types, I was fine with that. I felt that I gave to the person I was supposed to give to. What I ended up doing was becoming my mom's what's called a champion. It's very hard to go out and say, will you donate a kidney to me? Because it feels very selfish that you're asking somebody else to do this. But it was easy for me to do it and say, will you consider being a living donor for my mom? So I went out, and because of my experience as a living donor, it was easy for me to talk to people about the experience and what it meant, 
what was involved, how long the recovery was. And I went out and spoke to civic groups. I went all over the place speaking. And finally, a woman from her church stepped up and said, I'll donate. And my mom was 78. And they had told her, you will never get a deceased donor kidney. You're too old. Your best hope is a living donor. Now, my mom was super active. Other than her kidney, she was still involved at church. She was still running things at the lake. She still was very, very involved uh, in a lot of things. So her girlfriend agreed to donate, and they scheduled their donation, and it went beautifully. My mom bounced back. She was so amazing, 78 years old, major surgery, and within six months, she's out, you know, driving and back around running stuff and picking up all her friends to go to meetings and lunches and everything else. She really bounced back from the kidney surgery. She lasted almost seven years, and she filled every one of those seven years after the kidney surgery with serving others. She would pick people up. She would drive them to the doctor. She was kind of the taxi for all of her friends. So she had a very busy life, and it really wasn't until the last six months or so of her life that she became ill and had problems with the kidney meds. Again, it wasn't the kidney, it was the kidney meds, which are very, very brutal on your body. And so those meds are so the body doesn't reject the kidney. Right, because think of it, it's a foreign object in your body, so the first thing your body wants to do is attack it. So if you aren't on anti-rejection meds, which suppress the body's natural instinct to fight the kidney, your body would attack the kidney and kill it. So it is a way to suppress that uh, response. But what it also suppresses is your immune system. So you have to be very careful. You are very susceptible to colds, to the flu, to people who are sick. And, you know, unfortunately, any kind of small disease just becomes magnified because your immune system is so suppressed. Now, when your mom was living these extra years that she had through the kindness of a donor, was that during that time that she cared for your dad and his final illness? She got her kidney transplant. My dad was there by her side for that. And then he got sick and we couldn't quite figure out what was wrong with him. He got misdiagnosed. It turned out he had pancreatic cancer. When we finally caught it, it was way too late when we finally realized what it was. And my mom was right by his side. You know, when he passed away, it was two months shy of their 60th wedding anniversary. So they were together for 60 years. Wow. Now, here's my mom. She lost her husband. She's in the house that they built together. For 60 years, they lived there. And we sat down with our CPA and laid out her expenses. And she could not afford to keep the house. So we said, this is how many months you have. And she basically... We got her one of those little pods that, you know, you store things in, put it in the driveway. And we said to her, you're going to go through your boxes. You can fill up this pod. This is four rooms. And we'll find a place, an apartment or something where you're going to have four rooms. But this is all you can keep. And she spent six months and it was really her time of grieving for my dad and for the house and the life she was leaving behind. And she went through every box, every scrap of paper, every picture. Every, everything of her entire life that she had saved and, you know, and grieved and just allowed herself to say, am I going to wallow in this or am I going to say, okay, now I have to move forward. And we sold her house and then she moved into our house, which we were then going to sell and we were buying a new house. 
that would have a little apartment on it. So it would be a mother-daughter house instead of one big house. We felt that that would be better to give her more privacy and that kind of thing. Well, we were getting ready to move in and the uh, hurricane hit. So we could not move in. A tree blocked our road. We had no electric. So my mom spent um, almost a month living at my son's house. We were trying to get the house ready for her to move in. And when I think back, here's a woman who just lost her husband, just lost her house, her church closed within six months of each other. Major, major life changes. Once she moved into the new house, she started nesting and she started unpacking her pod, putting up her doilies and turning this little apartment into her home. I look at that as an example of someone who said, I just have to keep going. I can't allow this to destroy the joy that I still have in my life. She moved in and she would have people over for lunch. For the first time ever, she could park her car in a garage and didn't have to walk in the rain. And she was there for four and a half years, four of which she was completely healthy and enjoyed every minute of it, loved her house, loved having her friends over, and then got sick. And the last six months, because she was so close, we were able to take care of her. You were right there with Tom, but by the same token, she had her independence as well. Yes. That was like the best of both worlds. It was, from both our perspective and hers, the absolute best it could have been because we were still able to care for her without her interfering with our lives and without us cramping her life either because she needed to be able to decorate the way she wanted. And that sounds silly, but when we lived together in the big house, it was actually a huge struggle to try and give my mom her space because it was my house. And when she had her own space, she was able to do exactly what she wanted. And I think that gave her her last years of her life, allowed her to really enjoy it and really feel that even though she had lost so much, she was devastated the year my dad died, that she just lost one thing after another after another. You know, the church that they worked together side by side in, their house that they built with their own hands when they were barely out of their teenage years. And to lose all those things must have been devastating. But boy, she just pulled herself up by her bootstraps and went on. So your mom had about six good years after her transplant. So six and a half years altogether. Can you tell us a little bit about how she handled those last months? Well, it was interesting. She kind of handled it fairly aggressively. Now, that sounds strange to say, but like everything else, she was like, okay, what's next? I have to go for infusion treatments. Here's the infusion treatments. Let me bring my little bag with my stuff to do, my book to read. And I have to go for this treatment. I have to do this. I have to do that. As she began to deteriorate and we realized that her body was no longer making the bone marrow that it needed, the drugs that she was on had destroyed that. She was getting plasma infusions weekly and it would make her have too much fluid. And then, you know, when they drained it, then she needed plasma. It got to be this vicious cycle. Uh, We couldn't get everything balanced. The last morning that she was at the hospital, The doctor called at six in the morning and I said, oh boy, I'm sure this is bad news. And he said, I need to just talk to you about something. I told your mom that her kidney has failed and we'd have to start dialysis, which he didn't think was a good idea 
But your mom said, when do we start? <laughs> he said to me, are you really want her to start dialysis? And I said, no, we don't want to start dialysis. And we brought her home and that was the weekend that she passed. She literally, right up until the last day, thought she was not going to just give up and die. Kelly and I came by the night before your mom passed. She may even have passed that night. And that experience for us was just priceless because she was just true Nancy. Literally, right up until the last day, she was talking about plans for next week. I just remember your mom was lying there and we prayed with her and she said, I'm not afraid to die. She looked at me and says, I don't know how to. Kind of, what am I supposed to do next? Right. It just struck me that she wasn't afraid. She just wanted to know what she needed to do. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because there had been some confusion and the hospice never showed up. And while it's not a painful death, you want to make people as comfortable as they can be. And she was starting to struggle. And so at night, you know, we're going overnight and she's crying, carrying on. And finally, I was trying every technique I knew. And I said to her, okay, I want you to relax. I want you to start at your toes. I want you to relax this toe. I want you to relax your ankle. She got quieter. And all of a sudden I looked over and I thought, oh my gosh, I think she went. And then she pops her head up. Am I in heaven? <laughs> and I said, not yet. You're still here. She goes, well, why didn't God take me? I said, darling, when you get to heaven, that could be the first question you ask him. It was funny because I had never heard that story that you told about her saying, I don't know how to die because that kept happening. And even at the very end, she was fighting for every breath. She was not really conscious. I kept talking to her and saying, Mom, you can let go. You can let go. And she was fight, fight, fight. And my son's mother-in-law, Mary, who also had a kidney transplant that's had one for 35 years that's still working beautifully, came and sat with her and sang to her. <laughs> I'm getting choked up. But she sang her to heaven. Aww. And when she sang to her, it just released her. So she was able to quietly pass away. And it was such a beautiful thing because she had fought for everything. She wasn't going to give up. And then the singing just gave her peace. It's a beautiful story, Janet. I'm so glad that she had that peace at the end because I know your mom, she was always thinking, what can she do next? Yes. <laughs> God, you need help here. What can I do? <laughs> uh, but uh, that's a beautiful story. And thank you for sharing. I think other than telling the story of an amazing lady, and she was a woman of courage, strength, determination, faith, and high energy, and very, very giving and thankful. But the other story that I wanted told here was your story about donating a kidney and the lady also who donated a kidney to your mom, who in effect gave your mom, these extra years to do a lot of incredible stuff and help a lot of people, as you had given the gentleman years more with his family and to live his life in a way that could bring enjoyment to others. So how did having Nancy Salter as your mom impact your life? You know, I thought a lot about that question. And I think the biggest thing she taught me was to be a servant leader. She always, like you said, there was a flood in the basement. She's vacuuming up the water. She's running a meeting. 
and then she empties the garbage. So always learning to be a servant leader and never thinking that just because you are in a leadership position now doesn't mean that you are above other people or better or shouldn't have to do this, that, or the other thing, that we are all temporary leaders and it's our responsibility to demonstrate to others how to be servant leaders. I see that in you, Janet. I see how you lead as a servant as well. And I know that your mom was very uh, instrumental in passing that on to you. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think your mom would want her legacy to be? Well, I think she always loved helping the underdog. And then hearing years later, people come back and tell stories about when I was having this terrible divorce I was going through, you had my family over for Thanksgiving and you just saved us through this Thanksgiving. And sometimes we wouldn't hear from people for five, 10 years, but then they would always come back and say how they remembered her kindness. And I think for her, that was the most precious legacy that she left. That's great. And I'm so thankful that we've been able to speak to you about your mom. I know it's not easy sometimes to <laughs> back. Even good memories can bring a little sadness. But I'm also glad to have had the opportunity to speak with you about the importance of organ donation. Can you tell our listeners something about what people can do to help out in that respect? As far as being a living donor, you can donate one of your kidneys, which I can promise you. It was a lot harder having a C-section than it was donating a kidney. It is done laparoscopically, and it is done with robotics. It is very minimally invasive, which sounds funny because you're saying you're taking a kidney out, but your other kidney within a month is now doubled in size, and it reproduces everything that the two kidneys did with no problem. A few things you have to be careful of your whole life, but there are a few times in this world when we can literally save someone's life, and this is one of them. And then you can also donate a lobe of your liver. Your liver regenerates, and so you can donate a piece of your liver. You can, of course, donate platelets and blood, very important. And I do platelets every month. One donation of platelets is equal to eight bags of blood. And so it means that a person who's going through cancer can receive those platelets from one person instead of eight individual donations, which is very important for a person who's going through chemo. But, you know, the increase in the number of people who need organs is just staggering. And even from the number of years that I've been involved in the organ transplant community, it has gone from 90,000 people to 110,000 people waiting for organs in the United States alone. That's not the rest of the world. In the U.S., you know, and in most of the world, organs are not sold. You can donate them, but there's no selling of organs. In New Jersey alone, last year, there were over 3,000 new cases of people with kidney failure. That means all those people are either waiting for a deceased donor or for a living donor. It's important that you put it on your license. You let your family know that you want to be a deceased donor when the time comes. But there is one sad fact about being a deceased donor. For the most part, your heart and kidneys if you die at home or you have a heart attack, they are not going to be able to use them. They can use your cornea, they can use bones, they can use all kinds of other things, but your main organs, you have to be in a hospital when you die so they can keep you on a respirator and keep your heart pumping and keep blood flowing 
in order to transplant those organs. So there are just a few hundred people a year in New Jersey who die in the right circumstances to be able to donate organs. I know this is a probably a tough thought in people's minds about donating organs, either alive or dead. Sometimes it can be difficult to think about, but you are literally giving people life yes. and sight and quality of life. It's just an amazing opportunity to do that. I really want to thank you for that. I have a quote I'd like to share with you, and it combines both, you know, my mom's life as well as how I feel about organ donation. And it's from Peter Marshall. The quote is, the measure of life is not its duration, but its donation. Really, when you think of it, that's the essence of a servant leader. When you give from yourself, when you're donating your time, your money, your effort in life to guide, to help other people, to serve other people as well as physically donating to donate a kidney or a liver or as a deceased donor to give the gift of life to someone who's still here on the earth. Amen, Janet. Thank you. I did want to ask you about the transplant games. Have you been involved in that? Oh, my favorite. I love the transplant games. My recipient, Jim, before I had even donated, showed me videos of the transplant games. And he said, you are going to love this. So every other year, the Transplant Games of America, is a nonprofit organization, holds an Olympic-style set of games that are held in all different states. And unfortunately, last year was supposed to be New Jersey. We were already, I'm on Team Liberty from New Jersey. We had all this stuff planned. So then they postponed it to this year. We still can't hold the games as we normally would. It's about 10,000 athletes that come from all over the United States. But these are people who've had transplants. They're the most vulnerable population. So most of them can't fly, travel. They don't all have their shots yet. So we are having the games virtually this year. But the games will be held in 2022 in San Diego. So Team Liberty will be traveling out to San Diego. And I compete in bowling, swimming, and darts. Those are my three games. You a dart player? I didn't know that. I learned to play for the transplant games. So that's the only place I play is at the transplant games, and I practice ahead of time. But, yep, I learned to play darts and have so much fun because the games are not so much about the competition as it is about the camaraderie. And we're trying to share the message of organ donation and that people who have had organ donations can lead very fulfilling, active lives. So Janet, the transplant games have athletes who either received an organ or donated an organ. Is that true? Yes, that's true. And we also have another category who participate in the games, and that is called donor families. So donor families are families who made the decision to give the gift of life when their loved one died. Because the bottom line is when someone dies, even if they have an organ donor card, if their family says, no, they're not going to donate, they don't donate. So part of what we do at the games is to honor those families who've made the decision to donate the organs of their loved one and give the gift of life. Because think of it, they're in their worst, saddest time in their life, and they think of someone else and make the sacrifice for someone else. That is wonderful. Janet, how can anybody find out more about 
donating an organ? Is there a website? If you go to organdonor.gov, and it will direct you to your state's website of where you can sign up. And it's very simple. It's an online form. You fill it out. You'll get a little donor card that you can keep in your wallet. Or in New Jersey, when you renew your driver's license, you can just check off, I want to be an organ donor, and it will appear on your driver's license. But the most important thing is to make sure your family knows that that's what you want, because it will be up to them to make the decision uh, after you're gone. Thank you for saying that. That's something mm-hmm. very important to remember. Definitely. So, Janet, thanks again for telling us the story of your mom, your family, and the importance of organ donation. Thanks, James. It was great talking with you today. All right, Janet, and have a great day. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.